Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk of journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and this show is produced by Nina Coppell, whose surname rhymes with Opel. Coming up, the Pulitzer Prize winner who works in a brewery, Mamma Mia pulls a story on abortion, and Miranda Devine hits out at bank bosses posing as moral arbiters. All that and more coming right up. And joining me in the studio this week, we have, from The Guardian Australia, Michael McGowan. Hello, Michael. Hey, Peter. How are you going? From the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, we have its federal presidente, Marcus Strom. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Peter. Lovely to be here. And on the line, we have the aforementioned Miranda Devine, columnist, writer, and podcaster extraordinaire from the Daily Telegraph. Welcome, Miranda. Hi, Peter. We'll get to that Banking Royal Commission in a minute or so, but let's start with War and Remembrance. Anzac Day has come and gone for another year, but again, not without controversy. Last year, we had media personality Yasmin Abdel-Megid co-opting the words, lest we forget, to tweet about Manus, Nauru, Syria, Syria and Palestine. And this year, we've had Catherine Devaney calling Anzac Day Bogan Halloween. And Sally Rugg, the soon-to-be National Director of Change.org, channeling Abdel-Megid by asking, what if a thousand of us all tweeted, lest we forget, uh, Manus on Anzac Day? While she has since deleted that tweet, the comment made for stories in the Australian, the Daily Mail, and News.com, to name a few. So I guess, is it time that the news media stop feeding this anti-Anzac Day frenzy? Is there a limit to the type of Anzac Day coverage we should be doing? What do you think, Marcus? Well, I think it's quite normal to discuss our history and to uh, have a contested uh, way of imagining it. I mean, that's how histories are developed, based on facts that we interpret and we lay down understandings of the past. So I haven't got a problem with having contested views of the past. I just wish people would take a bit of a chill pill, uh, stop the confected outrage on every side and actually try and have a rational discussion because uh, our histories are laid down uh, by people. But is Abdelmadgid really talking about history? I mean, she's not talking about the Anzac history, is she? Well, what I think she's doing, she's putting her own political agenda onto a particular scaffold. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what everybody does with these uh, sorts of ideas. They put um, their own agendas and politics uh, onto uh, their own scaffold. I noticed Brendan Nelson wants to put Border Patrol people into the War Memorial uh, mm. at the moment. I don't know okay. if that's a good idea or not, but that's putting your own ideas onto a particular scaffold of history. Okay, no, that's a fair point. What do you think, Michael? Is this sort of, as Marcus is putting it, is it time we all took a bit of a chill pill here? I don't know if I'd use the word chill pill, but I think in the last couple of years, after the reaction, first it was Scott McIntyre mm. from SBS, then Abdel Magid, uh, and now Catherine Devaney. I think there's this sort of like climbing rhetoric around trying to get get attention around around this subject, right? And, and to, I guess, place your own, as Marcus said, place your own values onto it. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the, the issue with, with Devaney is that she's quite deliberately trying to create mm. a reaction. It's a bit look at me, isn't it? It is. And it's like this sort of, you know, how do I be the next person who gets fired from whoever for, mm. Um, mm. for saying mm. In saying that, I don't think that there is, a, there shouldn't be a limit to what these people can say, to what people should be able to say. But I do think there is an element of... Um, mm trying to, to reach for something. So, Miranda, do you think we're feeding this frenzy, we, the media? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, look, these people, uh, Catherine Davini and uh, Yasmin Abdul-Magid, are just leveraging off the coverage and the sort of reverence that Anzac Day now has in our culture to, you know, for attention. And then, of course, you know, it's a slow news day and, uh, you know, people who run online sites know that they're going to get a lot of clicks with a bit of outrage and so there you go. It's just it's it's such a cliche now. I I find it really boring, and I completely ignore it. I don't look at it on Twitter. I don't retweet it. I don't write about it. It's really become so um, tedious that I think they really need to find some something else to shock. I think it's mm. losing its ability to shock, but it does show how Anzac Day has become so much a part of our culture that. Um, they are trying to, you know, leverage off it and get some attention for themselves. And so, I think from the media company's point of view, it obviously drives clicks, right? Like that's why that you see news sure. writing about mm-hmm. Abdel McGee so often because she's obviously yeah, seen well, as divisive. Just, just you mentioned that. Uh, Keetan Joshi, who uh, works at CSIRO's Data61, has done a bit of analysis of Abdel McGee's coverage over the past year. And uh, he's found out that 207,000 words were spilt uh, talking about her, uh, many of them actually uh, in News Corp, of course, where, which, which has certainly fueled that. And he's arguing that a lot of those words were, in effect, charged with racism, and that the way Yasmin was treated by some media platforms was indeed racist. What do you think of that, Marcus? Well, I think that uh, she was treated differently to say the way Simon Holmes of Court has been treated today, who has basically tweeted exactly the same uh, kind of sentiment. Uh, and a lot of people have pointed out that that's to do with his uh, ethnicity and his gender. Uh, look, I, I think you can become overly focused on the identity aspects of it and that miss it. you miss the, the wood for the trees then. The real point about Anzac Day is you need to have a rational discussion about what it means in our history. Uh, Miranda just said that, you know, it shows what it's become. Th- that very phraseology shows that it it changes. It became something. It wasn't always like this in our society. Um, my my uncle, who was a veteran, loathed Anzac Day, would refuse to take any part in it. Um, and I think it has changed from when um, I was a child in the 70s and 80s to what it is now. And I think it's okay to have those discussions. Let's concentrate on the meat and, and try and get beyond the, the frippery. Yeah, uh, Paul Daly's just uh, this morning has... Uh, yesterday put a, a lovely uh, column in The Guardian about saying why don't we just treat Anzac Day a bit more like we did in the 60s and 70s and that it was a quiet day where basically the streets were full, full of piss diggers and not much else and that with the whole mythalization, if you like of Anzac has just gone too far. What do you think of that one Michael? Yeah I mean uh, I wasn't alive in the 60s and 70s so a I don't good job too, yeah. Rem- yeah. <laughs> remember exactly what that was like but I do think there is a, there is a certain deification of the the I guess the Anzac myth and and to the point that it's become almost it's almost to me supplanted Australia Day as this like national day right and and part of that is I guess because we're a young nation who's well young in terms of when we've been we were settled or colonized but the point is that you know we're we're, we're creating an identity or we're trying to create an identity and I think that's certainly elevated in in, in certain mm. in the last in no, the last that's a, certainly has been Miranda your granddad if I, correct me if I'm wrong served in the World War One is that right that's correct yeah so what do you reckon he would make of this debate I mean I, look 
he wasn't one for um, for glorifying war at all. Um, uh, he he served in you know he was in the Western Front. He was in all those battles. Um, he was 18 years old when he was awarded a DCM. Um, he came home. He never talked about it, according to my mother. And um, my uncle remembered only once um, his father taking a salute. In, that he was from Coolan WA at the local Anzac Day. Um, it wasn't something that he was at all interested in. Yeah. Um, and I know talking uh, when I was at a dawn service um, nearby my home, uh, I talked to an old older person who said that the same place in the 1970s, there'd be five or six people. And yet um, on Anzac Day this year, there were, oh, would have been, 2,000, 3,000 people maybe. So I think it's because in part we have so many young diggers now. Uh, You know, there are all the more more, um, veterans of the 15-year war in Afghanistan, Iraq, than there were from Vietnam. So this is a, a, a legacy that we will be living with for a long time. And I think it's a good thing that we um, we are honouring our veterans, past and present. Mm, okay. Final word from anyone? Well, I, I just think it shows that these things are all political. It has been politicised in a certain way. That doesn't mean just because you politicise something doesn't mean you debase it. You can debase something by by politicising it, but you can also be quite reverent in the way you politicise something. And I think a discussion about what was World War One, what was Gallipoli, did these people die in vain? I think they probably did, given the nature of the First World War, but that doesn't take away from the reverence and uh, how solemn we should treat remembering uh, the dead. Mm. Okay, thank you, thank you. And you're listening to The Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Peter Frey, and I'm speaking to Michael McGowan from The Guardian. Hi, Peter. Marcus Strom from the MEAA. Still here. That's the Journalists' Union, if you didn't know. And Miranda Devine, columnist from the Daily Telegraph. Hello, everyone. A Pulitzer Prize is one of the highest honours of journalists in the United States can receive. That's why, when you imagine a journal winning a Pulitzer, you might think of winners decked out in the best clothes and celebrating in a fancy ballroom. But the picture circulating of Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Ryan Kelly this week isn't anything like that. Kelly, who won his gong for a news photo from the race protests in Charlottesville last year, has had to quit journalism to find a more secure job. He now works for a brewery. Kelly's story is being seen as a sad comment on the news media in the United States, which has seen about 60% of its full-time jobs go down the gurgler in the past five or so years. That situation isn't that much different here. So what's to be done? How on earth are we going to make journalism a secure job again? I'm going to hand it to you, Michael, first, because you're you're a newbie in the game, a newish person in the game. Mm-hmm. So how secure do you feel, my friend? <laughs> um, uh, do I have to answer that question? No, I mean, <laughs> it's good to keep me on my toes, I guess. I, I think, I mean, I saw those U.S. labor statistic figures during the week about the loss of uh, U.S. journal jobs, and I can only imagine it would be roughly the same or worse in Australia. I came from a regional newsroom and I've seen, even in the short amount of time that I've been a professional journalist, I've seen already the the impact that those cuts have. So The Guardian, just sticking with you for a second, The Guardian has an interesting answer to that question, which in essence is begging. (laughs) 
not to put too yeah. fine a point on it, and it seems to be working. It, does that give, fill you with some confidence? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, I've always been a big believer in the, the idea of the commercial media business models mm. uh, as the right way to, to run newsrooms, but I think it's pretty obvious that that isn't working anymore, and, and I think it's inevitable that we need to start looking at different ways. I think in, in the States, they're moving or increasingly looking at not-for-profit, for example, as a, as a way of driving um, investigative journalism. It would be nice to see more of that in Australia. I think the issue we have here is that we have fewer large cities. We have less of a focus on philanthropy generally. Mm. Um, but I do think that we need to start looking at other revenue sources. Yeah, Miranda, you and I both worked at a place where when the sort of internet revolution first hit, the answer to that was to give everything away for free. Mm. Uh, you now work at a place where uh, it's got a much stronger, stricter paywall. Do you think that's the answer, getting people to pay for it? Well, it certainly worked with us, uh, with The Telegraph. We've um, recently just decided to put all our content behind a paywall and to because obviously our advertising is leaking away, uh, particularly with you know Facebook and Google uh, seizing a lot of the revenue that newspapers were getting. Um, and that's been extraordinarily successful, um, surprising people even in our company. You know, the subscription model had been that, um, that the sort of prevailing wisdom was that it was really only for highbrow papers or specialist finance papers like the Wall Street Journal or the Oz. But in fact, we've shown that uh, subscriptions work for us too. And even though it does mean that you, you know, your readership does decline slightly, um, it, we've actually found that people are willing to pay for content. And I guess it just means that you have to work harder and be a bit more creative with your content. And of course, look, now I work for Rupert Murdoch and he is a fan of newspapers. So we are lucky that, um, you know, he continues to back them and having a boss who, you know, one of the few who likes newspapers certainly protects us somewhat from some of the ravages that yes. I know other can I ask you? Can I ask you a, quick, a cheeky question on that? Mm. Do you think? Uh, how do you think news will look after Rupert? Um, you know, not that I'm wishing it upon him, uh, pops his clogs. Right. Well, uh, look. <laughs> let's hope that doesn't happen for a while because his mother no. I think, lived past a hundred. But um, look, I guess it'll be it'll be different because Rupert is of that generation that uh, you know when he started the Australian, he he's a newspaper guy. Um, but you look at newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and they've you know the Trump phenomenon has led to huge soaring revenue rising subscriptions um, I think the New York Times last year hit three million subscriptions so I think what that shows is that if you are offering readers what they want whatever that is you can figure that out there is money to be made and you can journalism can make money proper journalism not just clickbait I think we've we've sort of almost exhausted the era of clickbait, which really skewed journalism priorities, and I think really affected our, or you know, it's dangerous for democracy, I guess, mm. and for the, our culture. Absolutely, I'm going to I'm going to turn to my presidente now. What, what answers do I mean? Putting your presidente hat on. So obviously, got, the union thinks about this a, a lot. lot. Yes, uh, constantly. It, we would hope so. So Ryan Kelly, who um, left the uh, Charlotteville Daily Progress. He, the reasons he gave for leaving were bad hours, low pay, high stress, and he was burnt out. 
this is a familiar story to Australian journalists, uh, unfortunately. And I think if you look at our newsrooms, the Sydney newsroom of the um, of Fairfax used to have 50 photographers. There are now nine full-time photographers in that newsroom, I think which has bumped up a little bit recently. Uh, in Australia, we've had up to uh, more than 3,000 jobs have gone since 2012. Arguably about 5,000 this century have gone. That's probably a third of the workforce. So you're going to make everyone very depressed. What's the answer? <laughs> well, look, I, I think that we're going through a period of the end of for-profit journalism. Uh, I think that there are now four successful business models emerging and none of them are narrow, for-profit, let's pay the shareholders a dividend. What shareholders and those sorts of companies are like Alden Global Capital, which is taking a lot of money out of Denver, what they're doing, they are basically riding the decline of big capitalized companies like Fairfax, like the Denver Post, and just screwing value out of it to pay to their shareholders. So you're not opposed to a subscription model? No, not at all. I think that yeah. all these things work in the mix. But yep. I think there are Go four on. models that have emerged the four models. that are working. There's obviously public broadcasting, mm-hmm. um, which uh, not everyone is in favor of uh, because it competes with their for-profit business models. Uh, then there's the global agencies. And I think that's news agencies with global footprints, Mm -hmm. and that's whether that's Reuters or AFP, but also I I would include the New York Times Mm -hmm. and the Daily Mail and and the Guardian to a certain extent uh, in in that, whether the Guardian will survive through as one of those big global uh, news agencies, I think is an open question, and I hope it does. Well, Michael's smiling. I think he's looking confident. The other one one is um, private owners. It's back to the 19th Mm. century uh, days. It's so the Washington Post has a private owner. New York Times actually still has private owners. And I think then there's the sort of small uh, not-for-profits, small startups. I think they are the four models that are emerging now. The traditional for-profit, let's pay the shareholders, I don't think that works anymore in journalism and is slowly dwindling out. Uh, so I think what we want to do as a union is find ways in those four models to support jobs, support journalism, to make sure, as Miranda said, the very, very vital function that uh, journalism plays in a democratic society can continue and thrive. Well, jump in here, Miranda, and you, uh, Michael. I mean, we, I, I don't disagree with anything you said there, uh, Marcus, but surely the foundations of a, th- of a you know, viable business is that it, it makes dough, we, right? I mean, we do want journalism to make dough because then we can pay... Michael, Miranda, and, you know, indirectly you. So yeah. I think the financial model was also beneficial, or the, the for-profit model was also beneficial because it sort of guides independence, right? Because if readers are willing to pay for a certain quality of content, mm. then that's what the company will provide, I guess. I think it's on the source of that money, of course, of course. How, how rigid the... Sure. The, it provides for all the, kinds the, of... The independence well, is in the newsroom. M- Miranda would say, and I would probably agree, that, you know, Rupert Murdoch has probably... Uh, paid for more journalism jobs in this country than anyone else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, one of the, the, maybe the questions I have around those four models, aside from public broadcasting, is how do you get them to work outside of capital cities, right? Because so many of the jobs now are being centralised in in Australia, in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, and I guess uh, Brisbane as well, is... You know, how do we provide for jobs outside of those areas? In fact, I just do a, blow my own trumpet for a second. One of my other jobs is the 
co-director of the Centre for Media Transition, and I've just, uh, with my co-director, Derek Wilding, finished a report on that very issue. So I might put that on the 2SER website or some sort. What well, do you think? I'd love to read it. Sounds yeah, okay. great. While we're, I know, while we're plugging things, of course, the <laughs> Walkley Foundation <laughs> is right. having its May 11 uh, uh, Walkley Fund for Journalism event. Are uh, the seats still available? Oh, I, I think they're running out fast, Peter. <laughs> I think they're running out fast. Miranda, have you got anything to plug while we're here? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> my uh, internet, uh, live internet radio show slash podcast, Miranda Live, 4pm, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yes, I was only listening to it uh, yesterday, and it's a fine podcast, and you put a lot of work into that, I might say. Well, look, I think it's one of the things that we have to do, and, uh, you know, try and... Technology has taken away um, a lot of our revenue, but we have to try and manage that by... Um, using technology to our advantage, and there are now newspapers can be audio and video, and we're all morphing into one. All the different platforms, and I think you just, you know, you ride the dragon at the moment. It, we don't know what direction it's taking us in, but it is quite an exciting time if you do have a job in journalism, because we're sort of creating whole new ways of doing things. And I think, as I said about the New York Times. Um, and the Washington Post and also the Oz and the Telegraph more recently, we're actually showing that the subscription model, uh, certainly in the, in the States, um, is, is they're looking at generating more profits than the old print advertising business models. So, Miranda, do you think that's like the a Netflix effect? People are now getting used to mm, making micropayments, small payments for entertainment and information. Absolutely, I do, because, you know, there was that long transition where the public was so used to having everything for free. And, it, you know, it takes a while to get out of that habit and to start biting the bullet and saying, oh, well, if I want to read quality or watch, watch something without ads or watch a good show, I'm going to have to pay for it. And, um, and you know, and, and we all have to adapt. We're in that business and we have to start doing what the audience wants us to do. And... I don't think that this means that this the sort of terrible period we've had really in the last decade of clickbait journalism, which has been, you know, like the Twitter uh, tail wagging the dog of news stories has been quite destructive. But in fact, when you look through the smoke, you are seeing that people are willing to pay for quality journalism. They do recognise it and they're willing to you know, spend a bit of money on it. Okay. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Peter Frey, and I'm speaking to Marcus Strom for the MEAA, Michael McGowan from The Guardian Australia, and the resident Ogeon provocateur from The Daily Telegraph, Miranda Devine. <laughs> Hi, Peter. Let's start with you, Miranda, and the Banking Royal Commission. You've written a typically feisty column bouncing off the remarkable revelations of lying, alleged fraud, mistreatment of customers, and a lot more coming out of that commission. You've blasted the banks for spending too much time and money on virtue signaling and being moral arbiters on issues like same-sex marriage and too little time and too little money looking after customers. Well, I guess my question is, do, do you think the news media has gone along with this virtue signaling too? You're also to the detriment of its customers. Is the news media often too guilty of being moral arbiters? What do you think, Miranda? Well, look, maybe, but not in the same way. This sort of corporate virtue signaling, which is, uh, you know, the vast human resources departments, which uh, spend huge amounts of time and executive energy on 
balancing, you know, climate change and gender diversity and same-sex marriage and diversity and inclusion, all this stuff, um, it, it, you know, board meetings are now consumed by this stuff, which is not their core business. And I think it's not surprising that you see, uh, you know, this, this terrible unethical and dishonest behaviour that we're now seeing in the Royal Commission coming from the very companies, the Westpacs, the Commonwealth Banks, the AMPs, which were in the forefront of this new corporate social responsibility garbage, which is really done to sort of divert attention from their own practices to try and assuage their guilt for earning, you know, millions and millions of dollars um, uh, as CEOs and top executives. And I just think it's inherently fraudulent. And the, the, the news media, you know, of course, we might reward those companies. I mean, I don't personally, but they certainly get rewarded and perhaps um, they won't get attacked as much because, oh, well, they're, they're virtuous and they compete with each other to be, you know, like an employer's choice for gender equality or being part of the diversity council. But it's all bogus and they shouldn't be given a free pass for any of that because no one really believes it. Well, before I come to you, Marcus, can I ask another question which also was Miranda posed in a column? And that is, do we think the CEO of Westpac, Brian Hartzer, should be paid 110 times more than the nurse his bank ripped off. I mean, but we lionise these people, don't we? We, we They get up to, up to the Banking Royal Commission. Haven't the banks had a pretty good run from the news media? And are we failing our duty in that respect? Oh, well, I, I, have, I, I think that we have in many ways, obviously, because of all the mere culpas that have been coming out uh, in the industry. But, I mean, I have to call a little bit of uh, claptrap on you, Miranda, there, because, um, look... Firstly, I'll agree with you. I think that a lot of the corporate social responsibility is is bullshit, is baloney. Uh, male champions of change. These these organisations uh, have cultures of rank sexism, machismo, wage inequality between genders, and it's one CEO gets male champion of change on his CV when he's out job hunting. Um, <laughs> these things are rubbish. But where, what isn't rubbish? Climate change has to be core business. Looking after your staff from homophobia, sexism and racist attacks in the workplace is core business of any employer, including a bank. So that's where it isn't uh, just a uh, claptrap. That is looking after staff. That is looking after customers. Uh, that is core business of, of banking. And I think, I mean, I think... But, but Marcus, well, yeah, Miranda's but, point is that they were spending too much time doing that and not enough looking after their customers. Well, they have plenty of money to employ people to do both. And okay. I, think, I, think, I think that's a furphy to say you can't do one without doing the other. You can look after customers. You can put climate change at the centre of your board's agenda and consider how that's going to affect your profits and your customers and your, and your uh, staff. And I, I think uh, this idea that you can only do one or the other is, is, is not on. What do you say to that, Miranda? Well, look, these are companies that are entrusted with other people's money. And um, you, you don't hear from uh, in their sort of corporate social responsibility rhetoric anything about, you know, prudence and integrity and honesty. If they fostered I bet you do virtues, if you look in there as part of their corporate culture, have ethical and honourable behaviour because you are looking after other people's money, I don't think we would be having this, this Royal Commission. And I, I do know that human resources departments are obsessed 
with all this getting the green tick and getting the diversity tick and you know being being you know male champions of change that's all they do is try and get these ticks they're not interested in in inculcating a, a sort of an ethical honorable prudent corporate culture because that's boring but doesn't diversity doesn't research show that diversity improves prudence stops the machismo private school boy yahoo let's spend it all on champagne and cocaine isn't isn't actually having diversity in the boardroom and senior levels of management actually a counterweight to that sort of crap corporate no. banking culture no all that research is garbage and it comes from pwc and those places if you actually if you actually look at um, that, that sort of diversity research, it is really very shaky. And you look look at AMP. Um, that, that's a company that has a preponderance of women in those top jobs. It's got a female chair. It's got, I think, 46... Well, anyway, a majority of mm-hmm. um, women on its board. And, and its behaviour is shocking. So, right. I, you know, I, I find it insulting to say that somehow you bring women into an organisation and we're... Um, you know, the fairer sex and we somehow morally need to be that. the mummies that clean everything up. No, you know, you just have to get honourable people and have a culture that is focused on prudence and integrity. Michael, you've been listening to this a very interesting <laughs> debate and you've been thinking heavily about it. What do you say? I mean, can I throw another thing at you, actually? Paul Barry in Media Watch this week uh, made the point that several prominent newspaper columnists were very, very much opposed to the Royal Commission uh, when it started, saying it wasn't needed. Among not me. The, no, I know not you, but uh, uh, your 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 colleague Andrew Bolt was one of them, and they are now saying, "Sorry, we got it wrong." Is this a good thing that we're seeing a lot of mere culpers, not just from the politicians, but from the columnists as well? Mm, I don't think it's a bad thing that columnists are being accountable to the things that they said. I think, in in terms of the, the politics of it, there's a danger that the press gallery and journalists can get a little bit too obsessed with the idea of. An apology, like what what that actually achieves. Um, I did wonders for Kevin Rudd. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I guess that's true. Yeah, I think in in terms of the broader issue, I, I think maybe there's a chance that Miranda is conflating two slightly discrete issues. I also agree that the corporate responsibility stuff is often a marketing tool, and and it could swing easily the other way. And for example, if you know the the overriding sentiment was against same-sex marriage before the non-binding postal plebiscite. It could easily have gone the other way in terms of what they support. But I don't think when CBA, for example, if they're unfurling, you know, support same-sex marriage banners in the office or whatever it was they were doing, I don't think it was a choice between that banner and, you know, don't charge fees to dead people for a decade banner and they had to choose the, the same-sex it, marriage But one. it does go to culture of the place. I mean... If I, I can see all sides of this one. I mean, there's, obviously there are cultural issues within the banking system. I think that's being covered fairly well in the Royal Commission, but I just don't think that they really relate to uh, marketing exercises supporting social causes. Well, a final word with you, Miranda. What do you think about uh, the likes of uh, Andrew Bolt saying sorry? Is this a, is a good thing? Is it, does it get, a, get us closer to our readers? Um, yeah, I mean, look, if, you, if you've got it wrong, you should fess up. Um, it just, I guess, the best thing is not to get it wrong in the first place. That's always the best policy. Uh, Mark is itching to get just, in here. Look, oh, I mean, sorry. I think that the real cultural problem is that banking, which is a natural monopoly in the economy, is ruled by the profit motive and not ruled by the service motive. And I mean, I basically think Ben Chifley was right in 1949. Um, and uh, is Ben Chifley still being charged fees? I wonder. We should. <laughs> someone, someone should ask. 
All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, you're listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk journalism and other stuff. You are listening to The Fourth Estate. I am Peter Frey, and my guests this week are Miranda Devine, columnist from The Daily Telegraph, Marcus Strom, the national president of the journalist union, the MEAA, and Michael McGowan, a humble scribe from The Guardian Australia and formerly of the Newcastle Herald. Mamma Mia has taken down an article on so-called post-abortion syndrome after BuzzFeed reporter Gina Rushton tore the stories to pieces online and on Twitter. BuzzFeed revealed that the story was founded on bad research and failed to include professional psychological or medical perspectives. The Mamma Mia article did quote National Director of Abortion Grief Australia, a platform that pushes a strong pro-life agenda. There was no journalist attributed to the piece, but it was listed as coming from Mollusk Media. That was the byline. So to start off, does anyone on this panel have any idea what or who Mollusk Media is? I think, Michael, you've got some insights. Oh, limited insights, but I can't find any um, evidence of, of them as a company. I did an ABN search earlier today, and there is no registered business in Australia called Mollusk Media, so I have no idea who that is. So if anyone from Mollusk Media is listening, please give us a call, and maybe you can come on the show next week. But uh, continuing, after this article was taken down, Mamma Media told BuzzFeed that, quote, the piece was not native content, it was a contributed submission. Again, uh, Marcus, do you have any idea what those words mean? I mean, it sounds like a freebie or something. What do you think? Possibly. It sounds like that. I mean, it's a one-source story, unfortunately, so I don't want to make too many bold claims on it. But, I mean, as I, I used to be science editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and, of course, there were loads and loads. Of science media is renowned having single-source uh, stories that don't say very much, and that you know, serious science journalists always combat against that, and it's clear that this wasn't a serious piece of, of uh, science journalism. Well, it wasn't... Well, and indeed. What do you think of this piece, uh, Miranda? I mean, it's a, such a hot contentious subject, you'd think that, to be honest, that Mamma Mia might be a bit more careful. Well, look, I haven't read the piece because obviously it got taken down, and I think that's a big mistake. I I don't think that Mamma Mia should be taking down a story just because BuzzFeed has attacked it. Uh, You know, BuzzFeed is avowedly left-wing, so it's no surprise that they're going to criticise a story which might threaten the feminist dogma on abortion. And the fact is, Mamma Mia is pretty soft left feminist itself, so... But the thing about Mia Friedman is she actually goes to some effort to reflect the reality of the lives of her audience, which is mainly female, and that's why she's been so successful. And, you know, in this case, I don't know what the story said, but I do know that the reality is for women that abortion is not consequence-free, and many women do feel grief after abortion. Um, I have a friend who wrote a book called Giving Sorrow Words a few years ago, Melinda tankard Reese, and that was... I don't think anyone's arguing about that. I think the the gist of this story was that the Mollusk Media, whoever or whoever whatever it is, uh, had kind of created a, a syndrome called post-abortion syndrome, in essence. So, but, but Miranda, yeah, you, well, well, that sorry, sounds just that unscientific. Mm. You know, it's like giving a name to something that is just that is true. But I mean, so what if they've given it some some pseudo scientific name? Um, I don't know that 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 would devalue the whole point if that was the point that right. women yeah, do. Okay. I mean, even Jermaine Greer says, uh, you know, about abortion that it's the last in a long list of non-choices. So I just think that Mama Mia shouldn't have buckled to the pressure from 
BuzzFeed, which does this all the time. It acts like it is the moral arbiter running around the internet, tutting to people who don't fall into line with their ideology. Aren't you just falling into the sort of errors we were talking about around Anzac Day? You haven't read this article, and yet you're you're projecting your entire political philosophy onto something you haven't read and creating this political debate around something that you don't know, but you don't know what the agendas are. I've read the BuzzFeed takedown. Okay, that's fair. But what Miranda's point is that she's saying this is what... She's commenting on BuzzFeed, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, no, she's, and, no, she's and also saying it shouldn't that, have been taken down when she hasn't even read the article. Okay, fair enough. What do you say, that, so what do you say BuzzFeed, that, Miranda? But BuzzFeed has given in great gory detail what was in the story. So I'm just giving them, the Mamma Mia, the benefit of the doubt that if this is a story, which it seems it is, about um, you know women having problems post-abortion, um, then you know psychological issues about their abortions... Why would you want to suppress that? Well, I, I, look, I think uh, I think that there is there are lots of people who write stories that are uh, that come across this, and you've mentioned you know a lot of people have talked about the sorrow of abortion. Uh, so I don't think you know I think really what I don't know what we're talking about to be honest because we haven't really got to the bottom of what, what Mollus Media is. One way of looking at this, Michael, might be that it's just um, another example of what happens in the in the sort of fast paced media environment we live in. You know, it's just. Some bad journalism has slipped through. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly the issue. I mean, this is... I mean, it wasn't journalism. It, I, I don't know what you would call it, but it wasn't journalism. The the piece talked about something called post-abortion syndrome, which isn't a recognised diagnosis. Of course, after abortion, women can go through um, you know, mental health issues and, and um, things like that, but, but there's no proof that those things are any more elevated in women who have had an abortion compared to women who have carried through an unwanted pregnancy through to gestation, right? Mm-hmm. There are studies that, that have shown that, I think, quite well. And this piece that was published by Mamma Mia was, uh, I think it quoted a woman from, uh, I think it was called Abortion Grief Australia or... or yeah, Abortion Grief Australia. Abortion yeah. Grief Australia with some really just facile, ridiculous quotes. It didn't quote any recognised psychologist or doc, medical doctor or, or anything. I mean, Miranda's point is that, that people like Abortion Grief Australia and, uh, you know, are get silenced uh, by the media. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I, I think these people have their own viewpoint and they have the right to say it. Mm-hmm. But I think don't dress it up as a scientific article. I've got no problem with people expressing their views on this. And I don't really want to get into uh, it as an abortion issue. I want to get into it as a piece, uh, issue about journalism and a process in journalism. We've also had Emma Alberici had her articles go through a review process, were withdrawn and then republished. Um, I'm sure, uh, Miranda, I'm not sure what your position was on uh, Emma's pieces being withdrawn, reviewed and then republished, but I think if there is a problem with the journalistic process, which I think there clearly was with this piece, then it's quite right to remove things, review them and either republish them or not publish them. This happens all the time in journalism. Okay, last word with you, Miranda. Yeah, and look, I agree with Marcus that, you know, if it's pseudoscientific and um, it needs to be reviewed and there's there's errors in it, for sure. But, I, you know, it looks like Mamma Mia, had to, it should at least have a holding thing saying we are reviewing this story. It just sort of deletes it after BuzzFeed goes crazy. And the other thing is that um, Mamma Mia runs opinion columns. So maybe that was an opinion column. It would have been better for Gina Rushton at BuzzFeed to write her own opinion column saying well, how terrible it is, not 
not sort of bashing Mamma Mia for publishing it in the first place. I think Gina wrote it. I mean, it wasn't an attack. It was a news piece, and she went to Mamma Mia for comment. Um, she asked them about the process behind it, what kind of content it was supposed to be. I don't think you can call it... Yeah, I, look, I think there's been some mealy-mouthed words, and I think you're probably right. It should have been labelled as uh, as a, as opinion or whatever these words they've used. You know, this piece was not native content. It was a contributed submission. Anyway, look, this is a debate that will go on. Uh, it's a good debate to have. And more importantly, you've been listening to The Fourth Estate with me, Peter Frey with Marcus Strom from the MEAA, with Michael McGowan from The Guardian Australia, and Miranda Devine from The Daily Telegraph. And I'd like to thank you all for being on the show, which is produced by the remarkable Nina Coppell. And until next time, thanks for listening.